grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation 3, and let's read our text for this morning. So Revelation 3, we're going to read 1 through 6. So unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In case you have not experienced it, we're going to talk about church experiences today, but in case you haven't experienced it, I would encourage you probably today, maybe like it was yesterday, to go to the new HEB. We went yesterday afternoon and should not have gone because I think half of Collin County was inside that store yesterday. There was such a log jam um, that was there, um, just craziness of the, the people that were there. And you know what? It's another grocery store. <laughs> it has vegetables and fruits and canned goods and things of that nature, um, but we're going to look at a church today that had um, probably lots of opportunities for experiences to be around people and to do things. And yet when we read a while ago, we know that Jesus said about them that this was a dead church. And so as we come to the church at Sardis this morning, we have already carefully examined four of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in Asia Minor. And our time today, we'll see the fifth And so far, we have seen four had a strong and faithful ministry, and they had some other issues that were there. One of them, um, only one of them so far, didn't have any issues that Jesus needed to address. Um, But the other three had some really strong things. And we will see today, as we look at Sardis, is that Jesus literally has nothing positive to say about the church in Sardis. So as this letter was given to John at the end of the first century... And John wrote it down. This letter was originally to go to seven specific churches. And then eventually it would go out from there to other churches until it would come to us. And it would remain for the entire church age to be a relevant testimony about what church is like and what it shouldn't be like. And so I want to remind us as we begin this morning that though most of the book of Revelation is about future events and it's prophetic... It was originally written to seven real churches that gathered consistently on Sunday mornings to worship, um, to study the Word, to do ministry together um, in the church. And you can see on our map, we began with Ephesus, we've gone to Smyrna, um, Pergamum, or Pergamos, and then last week we were in Thyatira, and now we're coming back down to the sea, and we will make our stop Um, at the city of Sardis. So let me just remind us of this because I think it's important. The local church is incredibly important and it is near and dear to the very heart of Jesus. His last words to the 11 that had gathered when he ascended and went to heaven is he told them to go and to teach people all the things that Jesus had taught them. And what they began to do is, beginning in Jerusalem... They began to gather other believers and they began to teach the truth. And so the local church was born in Jerusalem originally. And then eventually as the gospel went forth, other local churches were established in other places. And so though the book is heavily prophetic, Jesus gives a strong affirmation to the local church and the significance of church health. Jesus desired Christians of every age to know what right church health looks like and to be able to recognize what an unhealthy church looked like. 
And so these principles that we are looking at are important for us. If you are a follower of Jesus today, these principles are important. And the reason they're be important is you are to be a part of a local body of believers worshiping. Not to be alone, but to be connected to people worshiping. And we need to know what does Jesus think about what true health looks like that's good and what are the unhealthy things that he is wanting to share. And so Jesus has some great principles for us. If you would turn back just for a second to chapter 1 verse 20. I'm going to remind us as we get into the text here. So John in in chapter 1 has turned around. He's seen Jesus. He's among the seven golden lampstands. He speaks. And in verse 20 he, he tells us what the, the stars are that he sees and the lampstands. And so Revelation one twenty, And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angel means messenger. So this would have been a leader of that church, that local church. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So go back to chapter 3 now. And so I want to remind us of that as we begin to walk through this, so we, we, would, we would know what is happening and taking place. And so the fifth lampstand is called Sardis. And it begins just as the other addresses have been already and will continue with the next two. This is a call to the messenger to consider the words of Jesus and to carefully consider the words of Jesus So once again, it just says this. Jesus says, and to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write. So I just want to remind us briefly before we move on to point two is this. The local church is to gather to be focused on the written text that Jesus spoke, the revelation that Jesus spoke. So this message comes to the messenger, the leader of the church in Sardis. John is to hear these things. John is to write these things down, and they are to come to the messenger of the church. And so there's a deep necessity for a local church and its leaders as well as the people to know the words of Jesus and to know the nature of Jesus. So Jesus here as well is going to describe himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. And so Jesus wants the local church to be deeply grounded in the word of God And the reason we need to know the words and the written words of Jesus is they allow us to know Him. Secondly, they allow us to know what His will is. And thirdly, to know what sin is and how to correct things or how to continue to walk in righteousness in the right way. And so His voice in the midst of the local church is to be a deep priority for us. Secondly, this morning, there is a necessity for a local church to be connected to and full of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says in the beginning of verse 1 there, the words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So again, Jesus here calling the local church to look at Him, to consider what He has to say about who He is. This is really important, church. Y'all with me? Everybody with me? Say yes. Okay. This is really important because what we are seeing today in many denominations and many churches is a redefinition of Jesus. There's not a redefinition of Jesus. He has told us who He is. There's been a revelation that has come to the writers. They have written these things down. Jesus defines Himself. And so therefore, we adjust to what Jesus says about who He is. And so now, to this church that's spiritually dead... Jesus comes to them, and in each of the churches, he's been describing himself. And to this one, he says, I want you to know this. These are the words of him, me, the Son of God, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 11 just for a moment. Keep your place in Revelation 3. But turn back to Isaiah 11. And so as Jesus describes himself here to the messenger of the church in Sardis, John listening to this, and he's going to write it down. This is a reference, these seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. 
And you can go back to Isaiah chapter 11, and there are seven specific references in a Messianic text connected to the Holy Spirit. So in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 and 2, if you would, follow along with me. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So let me just stop there, and the answer is Jesus, but I'm going to ask a question. Who is that referencing? Jesus. Jesus was to come. The Messiah was going to come from the line of David. And so Isaiah writing here, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And now Isaiah writes about seven specific things of the Holy Spirit relating to Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. That's the first one. The Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom, number two. The Spirit of understanding, number three. Number four, the Spirit of counsel. Number five, the Spirit of might. Six, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. So let's put all of it together. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this is a messianic text talking about the one who's going to come from the line of David. He would be the Messiah. And there would be seven unique connected things of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Messiah. So this is clear. John is coming to an understanding. We come to an understanding to know this, that as, that as Jesus is describing himself, he is saying this. Last week he described himself as the Son of God. This week he's saying, I have the seven spirits. The Holy Spirit has anointed my life. I am one with the Holy Spirit. We, we, we affirm three persons, one God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. And so here's Jesus giving a description to say this. I am one with the Spirit. The Spirit is a part of my life. I'm connected with the Spirit. He's with me. And and there's this unique aspect of Jesus here. And so these are the very words, the eternal words, the sacred words of the eternal Son of God who has the Spirit, one with the Spirit. And He also has the seven stars. And so this phrase indicates to us that the fullness of the Holy Spirit was a part of the life of Jesus. And they are continued as well in relationship with one another. Jesus spoke quite a bit in his ministry in the three years about the Holy Spirit. One of the ones that I love the most is at the end of a feast where they would pour water in the temple and water would would flow down the temple symbolizing the, the cleansing and the movement of the Spirit. On the last and greatest day of the feast, they would pour extra amounts of water. And this water would be flowing down and, and the people would see this. And so likely, from what we understand, is that where, where they're pouring this extra amount of water that's there. John seven thirty seven says that Jesus stood up on the last and greatest day of the feast. And he said these words. He said, if anybody is thirsty for authentic life, let that one come to me. And when they come to me, streams of living water will flow from within them. And there's a parenthesis in the book of John that indicates that though the Spirit had not yet come, Jesus was definitively referencing that eventually when salvation came and people were born again, the Holy Spirit would come and reside and that that God wouldn't be in a temple anymore, in a tabernacle, but His people would become now the tabernacle and the tent where God would live and God would move and He would come and live inside of us in the Holy Spirit. Later, Jesus Himself, on the night that He was betrayed, would say this about the Holy Spirit. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And so Jesus says, listen, one of the greatest gifts I'm going to give you is the sending and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which will allow and enable all Christ followers to experience a genuine birth and a new life and a new power to be able to walk in obedience with God. There are other references 
to the seven spirits in Revelation that we understand this to be the Holy Spirit, Revelation 1-4, and also in Revelation 5, verse 6, speak about that. So this is Jesus giving affirmation to say this, Church, you need the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what it would be like to gather together consistently over and over again and the Holy Spirit to never be present when people gather together? That was what's happening at Sardis. Here's the truth about Sardis. It was the place, we don't know how many people were a part of the church, we have no idea, but let's just say it's a room like this. And, and Jesus says very few people that were part of Sardis were true believers. The majority, probably 97, 98% of the church were not born again. They had not been born of the Spirit. They had not come to faith in Jesus. And yet they were gathering together and the Spirit is not present and yet they are doing all the things that churches are to do. But Jesus' description was this, you've got this reputation that you are alive, but I've got the, the feet of bronze, remember last week? I've got the eyes of fire that see the truth. And you're not alive, though you have a reputation of being alive. You are actually a dead church. So the church in Sardis is a place that gathered weekly. And the people that gathered weekly to sing the songs, to read the word, were not born again. The Spirit was not present when the people gathered together. And so Jesus here says these words, the Spirit has anointed me, I have the Spirit, He and the Spirit are in relationship with one another, and then Jesus says this, and the seven stars, and this is, the answer is not Jesus to this one, okay? The seven stars are references to who we read a while ago? To the messengers, to the angels of the church, to the leader of the church, or leaders of the church. And so know what Jesus says here. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, who, who has the spirit. And I have, I have them. They belong to me, the seven stars. The leaders, pastors, belong to Jesus in their unique call to be ministers of the gospel. Therefore, they are going to be accountable directly to him. That's why James writes in James 3.1, he says this, not every one of you should desire to be a teacher because you need to know this, that teachers are going to be held to a greater standard and a greater accountability for the things that they say and they teach. So I want you to notice what has happened here in verse 1. And when we connect it with everything that's been said so far in Revelation 2 and now in chapter 3, a church needs... Three vital things. It needs a lot of things, but it needs three vital things. And we learn from the dead church what a church truly needs. And the first thing that the church needs, it needs the words of Jesus that are written down. That's what a local church needs. So seven times in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, it says these words, And to the angel of blank, in blank, write these words. So a local church, what it needs more than anything else is not the newest, hottest, latest book at Mardell. What the church needs more than anything else is a proclamation of the words of Jesus that he spoke and have been written down for us. And so a local church needs the words of Jesus. Secondly, a local church needs people who have come to faith in Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit that the Spirit is abiding and residing within them, and the people are abiding and remaining, as we just sang about a while ago, in the Lord. So the seven stars here refer to the leader, leaders of the seven churches. But the leader in the churches, note, note this, this is still the case today, the leaders are not the most important ones in the church. Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is. And so, so he says here, ultimately, there's, there's no effective ministry in a church without a dependency in that church on the Holy Spirit as the great teacher, the great mover, the great awakener and moving people. A church will never, listen to this, will never fulfill its purpose 
when it is grounded in the ways and the strategies of man. But a church will reach its purpose when it is resting in and trusting in what the scripture has taught and tells the church to do. And there's a deep reliance on the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, a lot of people are scared of the Holy Spirit. We should not be scared of the Holy Spirit. There have been abuses connected, yes, throughout history and even today with certain aspects of the Holy Spirit. But I love our God who has a name, Holy Spirit. I love that he resides inside of me. I love in the moments when I don't know what to pray that Paul uniquely being led by the Spirit to write about this says this, that at times when we don't even know what to pray in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit prays on our behalf with groans and utterances of, of just taking the things before God that we need to pray. So local church needs the written text, the written words of Jesus. Secondly, it needs the Spirit to be at work in the midst of the people of God. Thirdly, it needs the messengers, the leaders of the church, to be fully submitted to Jesus' words, to Jesus' authority, and to the Holy Spirit as the teacher. That is, ne- is deeply necessary for local church. The leaders are never to fight against Jesus in his direction. For the written scripture is the mandate for what the church is to, to be about. So I I remind us this morning that all we need this morning is to rest in the ministry and the power and the authority and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and in the sacred scriptures. What we need is not better methods. Are you with me? We do not need better methods. We do not need better marketing strategies. We have, as a church and as the people of God, God himself in our lives. We have the sacred text that is to guide us. So what the church needs is not better methods and inventions and creativity. What the church needs is more submission to the glory and the majesty of Jesus and the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit moving and working in the lives of God's people. Sardis was no longer aware of the danger that they had abandoned the work of the Spirit and they had abandoned the words of Jesus. So why is there such an emphasis from Jesus here to the church at Sardis about their death? Well, because three things were not present anymore in Sardis. They had forgotten to listen to and follow the word of God. Jesus will indicate in a moment that They needed to go back and remember how the gospel had originally come to them. How had it come to them? Somebody had come and told them. They'd spoken the gospel. So they'd forgotten about all that. Secondly, they'd forgotten Jesus. And they had forgotten the Holy Spirit. And when you forget the priority of the word and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, then guess what you have? You have a dead place. It's dead. So this is a church, Sardis, in name only. It's similar to what Jesus described the Pharisees. You'll remember these words, Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And while these words from Jesus to the Pharisees and what he has to say to Sardis here may sound a bit harsh, they were simply an accurate assessment of what was going on. And they were also a call to say to Sardis, there's time, I'm giving you time to repent. You are almost completely dead. There's just a few of you who get it and understand this, who have not surrendered to the ways of the culture and soiled their garments, soiled their faith by buying into the sin that is prevalent in the culture in and around Sardis. And so Jesus is trying to jolt the Pharisees. He's trying to jolt the reality that was connected with those in Sardis for them to know the truth that they needed to wake up and there needed to be a change in repentance. You know what's missing in Sardis that we've looked at already? There was no outside persecution 
in the city of Sardis to the church there. No outside persecution. The church had absolutely zero trouble from anyone or any group in the city, indicating this, that there was very little gospel being lived out before the pagans or before the Jews in the city to get riled up about the, the Sardis believers, their stance on something, and them just doing whatever they, they wanted to do in regard to being faithful to the Scripture. Nobody was putting pressure on them. Secondly, there was no heresy inside the church. Last week we looked at there was a woman named Jezebel that was leading people astray in Thyatira. So it's interesting that as a dead church, it doesn't appear that they had gotten that way dead because of some kind of heresy and false teaching. Thirdly, it's really clear because of what Jesus says in just a moment is that the gospel was not alive anymore when the people were gathering together. The reason for those things not being present likely is because at some point in time, the Christians in Sardis had abandoned the truth and they had compromised with the culture in Sardis and they were just like Sardis, just like the place there. This was a place, listen to this, of inoffensive Christianity. Their Christianity wasn't bothering anybody in Sardis anymore. They didn't even know that what they were calling Christianity, Jesus says, was not Christianity. It was death. There was no life. And it seems and appears that nobody knows this at all. You see, they had become the epitome of nominal Christianity that looks the part, speaks the part, is busy, but has no spiritual life and no power. Paul described this to Timothy in this way in 2 Timothy 3.5. He says, there are those who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And Paul tells Timothy, you avoid people like that. Avoid them. What was one of the key things, and we'll look at some more in a moment, but what was one of the key mistakes in Sardis? Well, in their history, I put it on the internal page yesterday, Sardis was built up on a hill, kind of a mountain, mini mountain. And there was one pathway that to go up there, and there was a gate that was there, and there, there were steep hills on the side. And so for, for hundreds of years, people tried to capture Sardis, and could not because there was one way up there, this one narrow pathway, and they were able to, every invading army, to get rid of them. And so as they sat inside their fortified city, they began to think this, nobody can topple us. And it seems and appears that this is infiltrated as well inside of these, of these people in Sardis, who were calling themselves believers but were not, but were spiritually dead, is they're thinking this, well, I'm a member of the church, so I'm safe. If you don't know Jesus right now in this room, you are not safe. You are outside of God, and He is not living inside of you, and you ought to come to Him right now where you sit. Because He's the only place of security. And so here they are, they had, I think, convince themselves that we're okay we're busy we've got a great reputation as a church I'm a member of the church that has a great reputation all the churches know about what we're doing I'm doing things in the church that everybody knows about so I'm good all is safe The problem was simply this, is they had not considered Jesus' assessment of them. Can you imagine what it was like on that Sunday morning when this letter of Revelation came to Sardis and it was read for the very first time? And Jesus says, no, this is what my assessment of you is. I don't really care about all the stuff you're doing because you don't even know me. And his assessment hopefully jolted some people in the city. We don't know how they responded, but Jesus gives his assessment of this. So this is a church in name only whose members had grown overconfident and complacent in their prosperity, in their security, in the works that they were doing, but works that were set apart from Christ, not for him. 
And like many people today in and around the church, the people of Sardis thought this, I'm safe and I'm secure because I go to church and I do good things. And they were just playing church and they were living a lie. So I want to honestly ask everybody this because I love you. And I wouldn't love you if I didn't honestly ask this. Are you relying on your works to get you into heaven? And if you are, they are not going to get you there. And Jesus will not be impressed by good works that have nothing to do with him. Y'all remember the most haunting words of the New Testament in Matthew 7? Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, but only he who does the will of my Father. So it's not about, do I do a bunch of stuff and I'm earning some credits? It has nothing to do with earning credits. It has everything to do with the worth of Jesus, and that's what the cross was about. We couldn't earn it, so God came himself and took on the punishment to open the door so that we can come to know him. And so thirdly, Jesus says at the end of verse 1 there, he says, listen, there is a danger of a false spiritual appearance, Sardis, that you have. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So let me remind us of some things I think are important. The Spirit gives life, and this church had almost no Holy Spirit activity. Therefore, it had very little life. It had all the appearances of that. It looked apart in every kind of way. But Jesus says, listen, I'm watching. And I know what the truth is. They had programs, maybe because where they were located, they had the first children's climbing wall in their church. Maybe they had all of this other kind of stuff that that everything there, maybe it was the place to go to. Maybe it was the church on the go. They were full of doing stuff, but don't miss what Jesus says. He says, listen, I know you got a great reputation, but let me tell you my evaluation. You're dead. You don't know me, and you have abandoned what was taught to you in the beginning. There are no specific names mentioned that were causing them problems. Remember before, Jezebel, Balaam, Balak, the devil, synagogue of Satan has been mentioned to the other churches. There's not any kind of troublemaking. It appears this. Who was, who was the own worst enemy of Sardis? Themselves. They had abandoned the truth because they had made an intentional decision to do so. And I want you to hear this. Don't miss this. Jesus, the eternal Son of God with all wisdom, does not have one single positive thing to say to the church in Sardis. So it is even possible in 2023 to gather thousands of people in a building and have a lot of activity and a lot of excitement and a lot of movement and a lot of different things and that place be spiritually dead because it's not grounded in who Jesus is. So Jesus says to them, you've got the reputation of being alive, but you see, reputation does not equal truth. There's an evaluation that has to be there, and so reputation is not the same as true character or the substance of a person or the substance of a church. And it doesn't matter what a church may advertise about themselves on social media or how they may speak about themselves or how hip they appear. They may have very little life that is actually there, or authenticity or faithfulness to Jesus. They may just be busy entertaining people and pleasing people's felt needs, but no life was present in Sardis. And I think because this message comes to believers in every generation, there are churches like this in every generation. There are churches like this in and around us where Jesus says, I know your works. I know all your activity. I know your marketing scheme. I know your flyers that you put out and all the homes in the area. I know about all the methods and the strategies 
And you've got the reputation that, oh, that's the place where everything's alive. And I just want to say to you honestly, because I love you, that you are dead. And what Jesus is telling them is this, is that all visible manifestations mean nothing if the people that have gathered there are spiritually dead. So what church is that today in 2023? What kind of church is the dead church? You may, you, you've heard me mention this, and so I, I thought quite a bit this week and tried to, tried to think about how we could practically kind of understand about this. And there are some dead churches, for sure, that do a lot of different things. If y'all remember last week, the Sparkle Creed, that would be probably a church that's dead. But I think there's a little bit more that is connected to this. You may have heard that one of the most prevalent things that's going on right now in and around evangelical Christianity is something called, we used to call it being backslidden, but now it's called deconstructing. And it's people who were once a part of a local church, they were active in a local church, maybe they graduated from high school, they went away, they became a young adult, and they began to think about things and began to say, you know what, I was forced to kind of believe all that kind of stuff, I don't really want to believe that, um, what I was taught. And so they deconstruct, they tear down, what their parents and their youth leaders and other people in their lives had poured into them about their faith, and they're tearing it down to rebuild something totally and completely brand new. Now, most of them that are deconstructing, um, I follow some just so they can kind of keep up with what's happening and taking place. They still claim to have faith and to be followers of Jesus. But they call others to a different kind of look at Jesus that's not in line with historic Christianity. They, are, they call others that are, as they're de- deconstructing the faith and they no longer go to church anymore, they're calling others to be deeply connected to social issues. So I believe that the dead church today, I think in our culture today, is this deconstructing movement that has people who claim the name of Jesus, but they're all emphasized on fixing race relations, LGBTQ things, and they're all about fixing the social issues. But the problem with all of that is their aim to fix all the social issues has nothing to do with the gospel. They're not sharing Jesus as they do that. It's just about doing things kind of in the name of Christianity. So one of the guys that I follow, he wrote this, He said, let's be really clear up front. Deconstruction is an explosion, not a movement. And there are reasons why you should deconstruct your faith. And we support whatever reasons that you find compelling and recognize that many have decided that the Christian tradition no longer is the place that they want to call home. And so we want to encourage you to leave the church and to pursue your own path your own path to find Jesus. And so some of the things that are talked about in this movement is this. Here's how you find Jesus. And so they say this, we can no longer reconcile the teachings of Jesus. Listen to these words. We can no longer reconcile the teachings of Jesus as they are connected with the evangelical church. And so so we're just going to split from both. And so another thing that they say is um, we want to read the Bible thoughtfully And we want to seek to understand the full spectrum of its truth instead of just exactly as the text speaks about or the way that we have been taught. One of the posts said, these are things that you don't have to believe and still love Jesus. You don't have to believe in eternal damnation. The Christian tradition encompasses a wide range of ideas about the afterlife. They promote this. You don't have to believe that the Bible is clear on any issue. It is a highly complex religious text interpreted by, differently by many. So therefore, it just needs to do this. You just need to give deep examination and thoughtful discussion. Incidentally, um, I, I follow several, and I like to poke the bear occasionally. And so I will poke the bear with a question and, and, and nobody will ever want to answer me 
about this. They, they say this, you don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to affirm that the Bible's clear on, on certain issues, but then they say, but they also say this, and you, you don't really have to follow it on issues where it is clear. And, and some of the sentences in the Bible, is it clear? It's clear. Even some of just the basic things. A third one is, is you don't have to believe in a singular approach to Christianity. You can just basically make up your own ideas as you abandon historic Christianity into your own way. And there's just on and on and on. They will still call themselves a community of believers. They will still talk about church. But let me just tell you, anything I describe there, do you hear life there? There's no life. That's death. And I think this is, this is really prevalent today. And so Jesus just tells them, listen, you've got the appearance of this but, it, this, but you don't know me. You're dead. And so Jesus says there's a danger of being one of the walking dead and not the movie, TV show. There are many inside the church that are walking dead. And yet they have convinced themselves and think that I am a follower of Jesus. Now listen to this. If you have a church this size, let's just say this size in the room this morning, and 97% of the people at the church are not born again, they're not following the word of God. Let me tell you what you have in that church. You have problems. Because it's hard enough with people that are seeking Jesus to keep unity and understanding and direction and all of that kind of stuff. And so you've got all kinds of issues that are happening and taking place. And so you've got, you've got people who think they know the Lord and they're not born again. And they're like, well, I, the, um, I need to be recognized or, or, or this thing or that thing. And they're just, there's just all of this stuff. And there's probably, no doubt, a lot of infighting that is happening and taking place inside the church at Sardis, and so Jesus says to them, listen, there's a grave danger of you being a part of the walking dead, and you need to remember, you need to wake up, you need to come alive again. You see, for a church that is dead and cold, they are so, not because they don't have a, they don't love, because there would be love probably in some kind of form, but they are dead and they are cold because the life-giving blood of Jesus has not sanctified the people inside the church. And when you have unsanctified people that are dominating the direction of the church, you have a church that is deeply confused and Jesus says is dead. So the answer to a dead church is wake up, Jesus says. Not only wake up, but you've got to put in place the things that that are barely alive and are about to die, Jesus says in verse 2. You've got to strengthen what remains and is, a, is about to die because spiritual stability grows out of maturity, not immaturity. And spiritual stability grows out of life, authentic life of born-again people, not of people who are not born again. And sometimes immature believers spend their time blaming some of their issues on other people or blaming the church. For it's always somebody else's fault, right, within our life. When you've got, we've got problems, it's always somebody else. I'm just this way because of my wife. I'm this way because of my husband. I'm this way because of my parents. And I hadn't talked about this in years, so I can say it again this morning. And you can just be mad about it. If you're in your 50s like me, and we are continuing to struggle stuff that maybe our parents did to us when we were 17, it's time to put that to death. We've got to move on from those things. And if we're continuing to live in sin, we can't blame our parents for something that happened 35 or 40 years ago. The cross has meant to free us. Now, it doesn't mean that, there, there's, some, that there's not traumatic things that happen to us in our life that we will, from time to time, they will raise their head. But we can't blame how we are today based on something that happened decades ago or four years ago, or this week. We have a responsibility as God's mature people to walk in truth and to walk with Him. And so Jesus says, you've got to wake up. 
You've got to strengthen what remains and is about to die. You've got to prioritize the right works. Look what he says in verse 2 there. He says this, You've doing all these works and you've got this reputation, but I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. It's just like the deconstructing movement. They are telling people, do all kinds of things to fix the social issues in America today. And they're trying to fix those things without the gospel. And they cannot be fixed without the gospel. The answer to every ill in our country is Jesus. And so nothing's going to get fixed and nothing is going to get dressed locally, nationally, at all if Jesus is not a part of that. And so Jesus is sharing with them, you're doing all these works, but I'm going to tell you about your works. They're not complete because the gospel is not connected to your works. Because what you're doing is dead. So he tells them, you've got to remember what you originally received and what you heard. You've got to walk in it. You've got to keep it, he says to them here. And you've got to repent. The word repent is mentioned seven times in Revelation 2 and 3 to these seven churches. And then he says in verse 4, if you'll look with me there, he says, and yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All the church had going for it was three or four people, few. Let's take Jesus' words here. Just a few people, few people, three or four, who had not been stained by the wickedness of the city or the world or the culture there. There's an important thing about the remnant. I look across this room as I get to share with you today and, and often get to preach with you. There's a lot of gospel-loving, God-loving people that desire to walk in holiness that are part of our church. And many of us are part of this remnant as the church is, is, is being refined over the last three years. That God has a remnant of people who are not soiling their garments and buying the lie of the culture and they are standing in the truth and they are standing in the truth and being loving. And, and so the remnant always seems to stay the course and how their faith began, and they keep hungering, and they keep thirsting for the Lord. And God has always had a remnant. He had always had a remnant in Israel. He's always had a remnant throughout the history of the church of people who desire to walk faithfully with the Lord. Let's continue to be a part of the remnant. Amen? We've got to continue to have that desire. Lastly, this morning... Is five and six. So the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as we finish things this morning, Jesus' words here were ones of warning to a church full of people who were not born again but thought they were in the family of God. And though they gathered in Jesus' name and they had the appearance of lots of life and godliness and the members of Sardis who thought they were in the kingdom of God, they were in danger of missing out on the eternal blessings of living with God when this life is over with in heaven. So again, as Jesus does with all seven churches, he goes back to this idea is that, they're, that God's people eventually, in the perseverance of the saints, they will conquer. The remnant will keep their faith. They will not soil their garments or their faith. And so he says to them, the one who conquers is going to be clothed in white garments. And so the remnant of the people in Sardis, just the three or four of them, would experience the blessing, but the majority would not know anything about the eternal blessings of being clothed in Jesus and walking in heaven with Him. White garments were worn at weddings and other celebratory events. The color white indicates purity and holiness. In Revelation 7, 9 and following, in Revelation 17, 6 and following, it talks about the bride of Christ, the church, 
wearing clothing that is white, that is bright, and it's pure. It's fine linen connected to them. And in uh, Revelation 17, 7 at the very eight at the end, it says this, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so the white robes reveal that Jesus affirms that all true Christ followers will be accepted by him. So there's a heart of the conqueror to those that don't give in to the culture. As the remnant perseveres and stays true and walks with the Lord. And they have the great hope of the promise that the security of their lives is in the work of Jesus, not their works. And as they live that way, there's a security that's theirs that's connected to heaven. And so Jesus tells them, you need to know this. I will do something. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Now some would say, well, that's an indication that he could. And I just would remind you and I, um, Scripture interprets Scripture, and so you have to look at the entirety of things here. Jesus is not saying that he would. He just, or that he can or that he would, or whatever you want to say it, he's simply saying this, I, I'm giving you this assurance that your name is never going to be written out. It's secure. It's safe. You belong to me, and I will take care of this. Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's a heart of the conqueror. There's a promise to the heart of the conqueror of heaven that the name is in the book and it's going to remain in the book. It's just there. The promise is there. And that Jesus says this, this last promise. He says this, because you confess me before people, guess what I'll do? I will confess you, your name, before my Father. This is not a new idea that is spoken here in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the Goliath, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus said this in Matthew 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Luke 12, 8. And I tell you, anyone, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus speaks for everyone who makes confession of who he is. And he will affirm to the Father, to the angels, that we belong to him. And so the message concludes in verse 6. Again, church, hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Hear what he's saying to the churches. What is he saying to the church in Sardis? Have your marketing plan. Have your riches. Have your focus on this and that. And if you do, you better not miss out that it's not about those things, that it's about the gospel, it's about Jesus. So don't do that. Make the gospel, make your church, make your life to be about Him. So as we close this morning... um, How does a church get to a place where it dies and doesn't know it? So I flipped these things, and I just want to close with this for a moment, of of how you know some place is dead spiritually. Here's the first one. You will know a church is dying, headed toward death, or it's dead, when there is more focus on magnifying the image of the church than the majesty of God. So Jesus says in verse 1, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And so when a church becomes so focused on its branding of the church, its growth no matter what, numbers as the ultimate measure of the church, programs that keep families busy around the gospel but aren't really connected to the gospel, all of those things are signs of a spiritual illness. Scripture is clear. Listen to this. The church's marketing work rests 
in the hands of Jesus because he said this, I will build my church. I will build it. So that's either true or he's a liar. Which is it? Truth, right? So we've been doing this for almost 15 years now. There's not a thousand people on the campus now. So what? God's called upon us is to be faithful to the gospel and he will give the increase and he will do what's necessary. Our job is... We love you. We submit to you. We abide in you. This is your church, and you build the church. And so a church can have a radiant reputation, but it can be full of spiritual corpses that have toe tags on them, and the people are dead, and there's no growth One of the tragic things is for people to be a part of a church for 25 or 30 years and they're still asking the same questions they asked in year one at year 25. Eventually we get to the place where we got to quit asking some of these questions and we come to understanding. And it's settled in our bones about who he is. Secondly, a church is going to die when it's full of people who are asleep and they are complacent. So in verse 2, Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die. So I told you a while ago, Sardis was built upon this mountain. And for most of its history, it had never been conquered. And so there was this saying called Sardis the Impregnable. And you couldn't, you, nobody had ever done it. But, but, but Cyrus, the king of Persia, came one time and he's like, I'm going to capture this city. And for two weeks, they tried to attack Sardis. And every attack, the people in Sardis, the soldiers just waylaid the Persians. And so Cyrus thought, okay, I'm going to up the ante. And so he said to any of the men, anybody, any, any soldier can figure out how we get inside the city and capture it. I'm going to give you a great reward. So one night, one of the soldiers was kind of on the side of the mountain and he looked up and one of the Sardinian soldiers was up there and his helmet fell off and it bounced down a bit and he watched the Sardinian soldier climb down the side of the mountain about halfway to get his helmet and climb back up. And that soldier went to Cyrus and said, we can climb up the sides. I just saw one of their guys came down and we can come up. And so the Persians in 539 were the first ever to capture Sardis. What's interesting about that is about 300 years later, The Greeks were in power. And once again, nobody for 300 years could capture Sardis. And they had forgotten their history. And one of the Greeks under Antiochus the Great figured out we can climb up the side walls and we can get inside the city. Church, I just I want to remind you and I of this. It is absolutely important to know biblical history. It's absolutely important to know world history in our American history. So the Sardinians, 300 years later, had not learned the lesson that should have been a reality for them is that our city can be captured. And so this, this church in Sardis was full of people asleep and complacent, and when that is the case in a church, that's a dead church. When a church has people that are not redeemed. Thirdly, Jesus says, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. A church will die or is dead, when the church often leaves Christ's commands to pursue their own agenda, own marketing plan, own whatever it is that's there. Sardis was busy in ministry, but Jesus says, your works were not connected to the gospel. And churches today can get so caught up with finances, outreach schemes, strategies, And in recent years, trying to be much more culturally relevant to our American culture than being biblically sound. And when a church does that, that is all grounded in human thinking. That's not Christ's way. And eventually that place is going to be a place of death. And so if the church is constantly leaving Christ's commands for some other kind of idea and new thing that comes along to pursue their own agenda, then 
that will become a place like Sardis. Here's the fourth one. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard and keep it. Here's the deal. A church will die when the preaching is less biblically God-centered for a more people-centered proclamation. And that was what was happening in Sardis. Lots of activity, lots of people doing things, lots of, lots of stuff, but they had left a biblical God-centered teaching for something that was more connected to something that was not the gospel. And we know from Paul that he said that there's coming a day when people will no longer be able to stomach teaching of sound doctrine, 2 Timothy 4.3, and they will be in pursuit to find teachings that suit the mind of man rather than honor the heart of God. And out of a desire to to reach the masses or to reach many, churches compromise what is biblically true for a humanistic kind of message that's not designed to offend anybody, but to make sure everybody is feeling okay. And that's not the biblical pursuit that a church is to have. Rather than preaching the authoritative word in in the authority of the Holy Spirit, they preach a watered-down version of something that encourages more tolerance of the culture and ignores or lessens the hard truths as not necessary for genuine faith. And if a church is not going to be willing to hold fast to God's word and faithfully teach and proclaim and speak it in season and out of season. By the way, we are in an out of season time of speaking the truth. And if a church is not willing to do that, then they are on the road to dying and becoming quite less of what Jesus says a true church is. Lastly, a church will die definitively die when the church does not speak of or call people to repentance. If there's never a call and never a speaking for people to turn from their sin, so twice in the text here, the end of verse 3, and repent, verse 4, and yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, for they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And from the very birth of the church, the practicing and the teaching on repentance has been a key point to the health of the church and to the health of Christians. Listen to the last words of Jesus. After he had died on Friday, it's now Sunday night, and he shows up in a room with the afraid apostles Locked away. Listen to what he said to them that they are to go and do. Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now listen to this. 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The lack of speaking about the repentance of sin is sin. We will never grow in sanctification. We will never grow if we are not consistently practicing, continually cleansing our life and and coming back to Him. And I tell you, if Satan can convince a local church or an elder group or a pastor or a youth minister, if he can convince them that a church shouldn't practice repentance, then people will not live strong in their faith. They will live confused in their faith. For we must practice repentance. And if the truth concerning sin, if y'all think that alarm's going to stop me, it's not. That, that alarm's not for me to stop preaching, okay? My wife is not holding that, so anyway. I am almost done. If the truth concerning sin and repentance and faith 
is not practiced, then we will continue to live in sin. So it's critical, church, that I talk about sin and I call myself and I call you to repentance. Not repentance for salvation, but repentance in right relationship with the one who's redeemed us. You see, the ice cream fellowship can never be more important than calling people to a biblical standard for life infused with repentance. Can he awaken dead things? Can he? The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these dead bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, you proclaim, you prophesy over these bones and you say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and and, and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel says, so I prophesied as I was told to do. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And I want to remind you today that our God can raise the dead American church to life again. And he can raise your life today to genuine faith. Let's pray.